Hey, everybody. Welcome. You are not going to want to miss this episode. So I have one of my favorite people. He's an amazing internal medicine physician from right here, Erie, Pennsylvania, uh, Dr. David Hustle. He has an amazing background. His family, he had a, a grandfather that was a, a surgeon in the Cleveland area. He spent a lot of his educational years in Cleveland, both at John Carroll and then at Case Western. Spent some time in the Navy as well. So very decorated career, uh, amazing, amazing individual, professionally, personally. Um, you're not going to miss this because there's a lot of like very deep, personal, heartfelt feelings that are shared, a lot of camaraderie, a lot of mutual respect, and always the Sawbones Challenge, which is at the very end. So stick around, tune in, and thank you again. We'll see you soon. everybody. Welcome to Hey Sawbones, my story, my passion. I'm Dr. Ryan Molly, your host, orthopedic surgeon, cutter of bones, entrepreneur, businessman, and most importantly, husband and loving father of three young boys that are very, very busy. Today, I am super excited for our special guest. Uh, this is a gentleman that I've known for quite some time. If you are from the Erie, Pennsylvania area, he probably needs no introduction. He is extremely well known in the area. He's an amazing internal medicine physician. He works in Erie, Pennsylvania at um, UPMC, and um, he founded an internal medicine practice. Um, I'm going to let him tell you a little bit more about that, but what a history. I mean, he graduated from um, John Carroll. He was there from 1988 through uh, 1992. He then went on to medical school at um, Case Western Reserve in Cleveland, Ohio. Both of those were there. He then went on to the, the Navy and he did his medical school internship um, as, as I'm sorry, his re internship and residency through the Navy and then uh, moved to Erie, Pennsylvania. And um, so without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. David Hutzel. So, thanks. Dave, yeah, thank you. Thank th you thanks for joining me. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. So as we always start these off, I love to hear and my guests love to hear about who you are, what you do and how you got to where you are. Yeah. Um, 
So I'm uh, originally a farm boy from Ohio. I grew up on a uh, beef and pig and chicken farm. And uh, my grandfather was a very prominent general surgeon in Cleveland in the heyday. Um, he was chief of staff at any uh, many major uh, hospitals in Cleveland, such as St. Luke's, St. Vincent Charity, um, and he also worked for the railroad. So I have distinct memories of watching him uh, operate on his Rottweilers when they would fight, uh, not intentionally. Um, and uh, I remember as a young child uh, going into the hospital and shadowing him a little bit and uh, just seeing how uh, you know, grateful his patients were. And uh, as you mentioned, went to John Carroll, went to uh, Case Western, uh, and the Navy paid for medical school, which I'm very grateful. And uh, I spent two years on an aircraft carrier, the George Washington, and was deployed uh, to the Persian Gulf, and that was very exciting. It was uh, difficult leaving my wife, but uh, the most romantic and happy day of my life was uh, seeing her on the pier with uh, two uh, little babies. And uh, then we spent two years in Okinawa, Japan, and we were there uh, during 9-11. Uh, we endured a couple typhoons and uh, really enjoyed that experience in terms of living in Japan. Uh, moved to Erie in 2003. Uh, my wife's family uh, is from here, big Irish Catholic family. And I always really loved my in-laws and I loved my uh, brother and sister-in-laws, so I was happy to come here. Um, and... Uh, in 2005, I struck out on my own and opened Greenfield Internal Medicine, and those were a couple very difficult years, uh, as you know, opening your own practice. And now, as of today, we are up to eight physicians and five nurse practitioners. Uh, we take care of about between 10 and 12,000 patients, and uh, I really like my partners. I really like my office managers, staff. Happily married for 29 years. I have three kids. So they're all grown and gone, done with college, and they're all doing really well. Uh, one lives in California, one lives in Bath, England, and one lives in Pittsburgh, and she works for UPMC Presby. So that's kind of a snapshot overall, uh, kind of who I am and how I got here. So one of the things I always ask my guests is kind of like first memory of me and my first memory of you. And I'll go first because I don't know if you remember this, but and I, I know we've talked about this, so you probably remember from me t bringing it up to you. But the first time that I think we ran back into each other was at a function at Kakwa, uh, our, our mutual country club, yep. and I believe it was maybe like a, a first communion or first reconciliation or something along those lines for one of our mutual friends. And I remember looking over and I said, "That's Dr. Hutzel," and I remember doing a rotation with you. It would have been like 2003 or 2004 ish um, at Hammett. It was my internal medicine rotation. And I remember rotating with you and, and a couple of the other physicians there. And my first impression was I wanted to go up and talk to you, but I was pretty intimidated because I remember you were just wicked smart. And I was like, oh, he's that dumb guy that decided to go into orthopedics. But what about your first memory? If, if, if my cockwa coming up and talking to you was your first memory, that's fine too. Well, no. So yeah, it was uh, Easter brunch at Cockwa, and I remember. Oh, that's I, what and it was. Okay. As soon as you reminded me who you were, I definitely remembered you as a student. Um, and those were kind of hectic, uh, busy days for me, where things were sort of a blur. But definitely remember you being a very inquisitive, uh, real serious student. I remember you. Um, even though you knew kind of then you were interested in surgery, I remember you being very 
genuinely interested. Uh, you kind of grasped the concept that even though you're going to be a surgeon, internal medicine was still relevant because you had to have some knowledge about blood pressure, diabetes, et cetera. Whether you were going to manage it or not, you knew that it could affect your in input as a surgeon. I remember that quite clearly that as a student, you, I don't think you necessarily knew you were going to be an orthopedic surgeon doing hip and ankles, but I think you knew that you were moving in that direction. Yeah. And I, I remember you being, uh, getting the concept that, hey, look, even though I'm not going to manage this stuff. And so th that was my first memory, but it was you reintroducing yourself, which I'm appreciative because uh, our friendship has blossomed since then. It sure has. We're definitely going to get into some of that. I mean, our hiking expeditions, um, our mutual respect for one another professionally and our mutual patients that we share. But, you know, before we get too much further, I, I mean, are you thirsty? You, you want a little beverage? I'm good. No, I'm actually okay. Well, I'm going to give you one anyways, because it's <laughs> part of the show. <laughs> so I, I asked uh, Dr. Hutzel what his favorite drink was, and he said Irish whiskey. I'm like, ooh, I don't know if I can drink that. And then um, I think his second drink was uh, some type of uh, rum. Rum, right. Yeah. yeah. And so I kind of went off the beaten path, and I, I, I created my favorite, because I don't, I'll drink some beer and some wine. Um, I don't drink a lot of cocktails, but like there's one in particular that I love that I was introduced about three years ago okay. that I love to share with my close friends because it's special. So it's, it's called a Vucare. Have you ever heard of that? I've heard the name, but I have no idea what it is. So it's kind of like a New Orleans French spin on a old fashioned. So it has your standard, um, you know, bourbon in it. it. It also has cognac. So give it a little bit of sweeter taste. It okay. has uh, sweet vermouth. It has Benedictine, um, and then it has um, Luxardo cherries and just like an orange peel. And sounds great. It's 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 a fantastic drink. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna share that while we're telling stories and asking questions. Sounds good. You're all set there. Great. Yeah, we're good. And notice the glass. Wow, I'm impressed. Yeah, a little copper club. That's great. So we're we're representing, celebrating our our mutual country club. Aqua. Yeah. And uh, cheers. Cheers. Salute. Yep. Tell me, tell me what you think. Be honest. Oh, that could be dangerous. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? That could be dangerous. You taste the Luxardo's in there? Yeah. that's. I didn't uh, even taste test it before. I was just like, well, I'm going to follow the recipe to a T. That could be, uh, that could be dangerous, but that's, uh, thank you. That is, uh, wow. Okay. So Vucare, it's it's French spelling. It's V I E U X space C A R R E. So look it up. It's a great cocktail if you want to share with your friends, family. So that's great. Uh, we go into the Q and A, right? So uh, we kind of talked about this a little bit, kind of the ground rules. So yeah. it'll be six questions. You'll ask me three business questions, then three personal questions. The one thing I forgot to tell you. Um, if there's a question that I ask you that you don't like, you're not comfortable with, you can veto it. You get one veto. Okay. But I'll also add that you're like episode seven or eight, and not one person has vetoed one question. Oh, okay. Yet. So, so no, person, no pressure. The pressure's on. Okay, good. <laughs> so fire away. Yeah. yeah. Um, so personal question? Uh, let's go business first. Business first. Okay. Business uh, in the front, party in the back. Uh, right. So, you know, obviously I know that you really enjoy uh, what you do. Um, what is your biggest non-surgical challenge of you running your practice what is your what's your biggest headache behind the scenes you know making things run 
uh, medically or just operationally? Uh, kind of operationally. And that, that, that can include insurance. That could include staffing. That could include, you know, the logistics of driving. Like, what is the, you know, what's the thing you're like, ah, if I could, you know, what, you know, because obviously you're, you've done really well uh, in, the, in the years um, and you make it look easy. What, what, you know, what keeps you up at night, you know? Well, I can tell you first and foremost, it's not easy. Um, thank you for saying that I make it look easy, but I must have a good poker face, which I don't play poker. <laughs> so uh, I would say number one frustration, challenge, difficulty thing that if I could trade in tomorrow is uh, just staffing, right? I love my staff. I love my team, but I will tell you that is by far and away the hardest thing. I think since COVID, um, the world has really changed um, and, and I am a total optimist. Glass is always half full. I think a lot of what COVID taught us was that a lot of things can be done remotely. And we had to get creative. We had to think outside the box. But one of the negative things that occurred was, um, I think COVID messed with a lot of people physically, but also mentally, emotionally. And, you know, I, I talked about this actually on a previous episode where um, you get an entry level position that opens up and you're bringing someone in. And four or five years ago, that position would have been paid X for that. And that was the industry standard, right? And four or five years later, plus one major global pandemic, that position now pays X plus this amount. And it's not something that is even equivalent to what it should be for four or five years of inflation. It's dramatically more. And as a private practice, that that hurts. I mean, COVID crushed small businesses and it really, really hurt a lot of private practices, if it didn't destroy them. Um, we were able to weather the storm, but it almost created a sense of, um, I, I hate to use the word entitlement, but like people were coming out of it. When you see wages at McDonald's, you know, not doubling, but like going to like 16, 17, $18 an hour um, or, you know, other fast food chains, it's just like, seriously, like how am I going to keep up with that? And so that's definitely a challenge. The, the second challenge that I would mention would be insurance companies, right? And we have seen um, for 20 straight years, our, our professional reimbursements for services provided, whether it's an in-office visit versus a surgical procedure that we perform, they have reduced dramatically. And I, I don't mean like a little amount. Over 20 years, 85%. Wow. So, I mean, it's, it's been a substantial, oh, wow. substantial hit. And there's no end in sight. So it's... Um, required, you know, private practices to either get out of it and, and go to an employed model or to really start thinking about how can I deliver better care and do it in a, in a creative, thoughtful, and very quality-driven measure, which fortunately, um, and I'm not bragging, but there's if I, if I had like one strength, it's I tend to think outside the box, right? I, I'm not your standard physician where, you know, all I do is just put hips and knees in. I, I actually really like the business side of things. I didn't. I never thought I would. Um, quite honestly, my best friend Jared Oaks, he went to, um, you know, Mercyhurst and he got a business degree and ended up going to law school and very, very entrepreneurial, very business savvy. And he would tell me things, you know. All about. He, he would speak his language, not only his legal language, but his business language. And I had no idea the terms he was talking about. And then as I got into private practice and then started my own practice in 2018, um, I started realizing like it's very, very important that I understand how a business runs, 
how the medicine, medical side, the business side of medicine runs. And so I've, I've kind of learned on the job from that, but definitely by far and away the most challenging. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. What else? Um, you, you do I, six in a row. Yeah. I had six in a row. And then okay. you get a break and I ask you so, questions. So uh, next question I'm interested in is, you know, sort of the future. Um, you know, and I realized that, you know, there's a lot of physics and there's a lot of math in your job. Um, do you see uh, robots and artificial intelligence uh, assisting you in the next two, five, ten years? You know, again, you can't turn anything on without talking about AI, artificial intelligence. Do you see an AI assistant? Do you see a robot assistant? Um, do you see yourself operating remotely, you know, via robots and the, the cases being done in another county? And I realize we're talking you know, really high tech stuff, but yeah. do you see that happening potentially in your career in, you know, two, five, 10 years? Are you on LinkedIn? I'm not. Oh, because it's amazing. There was a post literally yesterday that talked about this. Okay. And it was, a, a um, an orthopedic device engineer. And he literally asked the community this exact question. He brought up the exact topics. You're talking about robotics, virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and I was the first person to comment on that. And I said, you know, Jerry, um, I think that there is a tremendous value with a lot of these technological advances. But he almost looked at it in terms of like self-driving cars where like the, the, this would almost replace surgeons. And his question was, do, did he think that the, the gap between like your really, really experienced and talented surgeons and your relatively inexperienced or less talented or gifted surgeons with their hands would narrow with these technological advances. And I, I said, I, I don't think so. Not to the degree that most people are thinking. Do I think there's a role? Absolutely. However, I think that the role is not as much during surgery. Yes, there's some value add there. But to me, the big value add is decision making before surgery, quite honestly, where and one of the examples I can give you is, um, a good buddy of mine, he was presenting to me um, an artificial intelligence software system that could actually look at x-rays and could look, at, they would look at all of the x-rays and they, they based this off of x-rays that they knew would either get a total knee or they knew were going to get a partial knee. They then went back and looked at all the characteristics that ended up qualifying or, or determining what decision that surgeon made and to see if moving forward, that AI can predict, is that going to end up being a partial or total need just based upon a couple x-ray views? And it was extraordinarily accurate. Like it could predict what the surgeon was going to do and it didn't know the end result. So I do think that there is value in that because there's things that we just can't even pick up on. And there's that, I guarantee you have this in your life where you just have this like sense of like, mm, and you maybe can't explain it. Like I can look at an x-ray and someone will say, is that going to be a partial or total need? Most of the times I can explain why I think it's a partial or a total, but there's times where I'm just like, I just have a gut feeling this is going to be a total. And I'm like, I see a little bit of subluxation. I see a little bit of a rent right here in the lateral femoral condyle. Sometimes it doesn't end up there, but like my gut is telling me it's a total. And this AI is really, really good. Not, not its gut, but it's, it's actually very smart to pick up on things that we can't. In terms of like the surgical perspective though, I would 10 times out of 10, take the top 5% very extremely talented surgeon that has over 10,000 cases under their belt experience and extremely, extremely good hands. We're talking about the, 
the Michael Jordans, the Tom Brady's, the Derek Jeter's of surgery over the bottom 75% that had the best robots, the best AI, and the best VR in their hands, virtual reality. Um, because I think that there's there's still, it needs to be executed, right? There, there, there is this um, experience that goes with seeing something and, and, and the artistic side of what I do, which... I mean, I, I just don't think that the the robots, um, at least, I, I don't see it happening in my lifetime. Um, I do see robots which are already out there, AI is already out there, VR is already out there. But in in terms of being like widely utilized, I think that it would benefit the less talented or skilled surgeons much more than it's going to benefit the the five top five percenters. Right? Yeah. It's not going to make the the, the, the bottom five equal to the top five, the top five, are, the cream's always going to rise to the top, in my opinion, because it's not just what you do, it's how you deliver it too. Because you still have to be a physician, you have to, still have to be a, a care provider, you have to have a bedside manner, and a robot can't teach you that. Sure, sure, interesting. Um, sort of a question, sort of a comment, and you and I have talked about, I think we talked about a little bit the last time we were playing golf. I'm appreciative of the fact that you're willing to think outside of the box in terms of operating on um, young people that other surgeons won't even consider. Um, I think you and I talked about the gentleman um, without breaking HIPAA that was in his relatively early 40s that was couldn't work and was basically debilitated because of just knee pain. Yeah, really no other medical problem. Um, you know, so it's sort of a comment, sort of a question. You know, I. I I think I know your answer, but I think you don't really necessarily have, there's no absolute bottom age that you wouldn't operate on. Um, I, I think you and I are a little bit old, you know, old fashioned in terms of, you know, look, it's, it's about quality of life. It's, you know, it's about getting these people back to work and let's say best case scenario, a knee lasts for a person 25 years. Yeah. I'd rather see a 35 year old get 25 years out of, you know, artificial knees, knowing he needs another surgery. And I, I just, if, do you have any comments regarding, you know, young people with unusual debilitating arthritis? Uh, you know, I, uh, you know, I've been frustrated in, you know, in terms of other surgeons, you know, not even, not even considering, not even having consultation. And I think there's good surgeons that have turned needy patients away. And I just, I'm kind of curious for your thoughts there. Yeah. So a couple things, first and foremost, I've operated on as young as 26 joint replacements. It was a female. I was in Michigan. She was a hip. She had dysplastic hip from congenital uh, dysplasia of the hip. Oldest was 103. He, he had a knee replacement. So if you fall in that age range, you, you, you probably fall in my age range. Yeah. Um, now, that being said, is like, do the average age range is probably like 65, right? 65 to 70. But I operate on a lot of younger people that have very severe uh, degenerative joint disease of their hip or their knee. And th there's a couple points. Number one, I've never saved a life with doing hip or knee replacement. So the good news is these people aren't going to die if they don't get their hip or knee done. The bad news is this significantly, and you know this, significantly affects their quality of life. Right. And it's almost, I kind of joke, but I say I'm almost like a plastic surgeon where like I do elective procedures, I don't save any lives, and I help to make your life better, whether that's with breast augmentation or hip or knee replacement, right? Yeah, but yeah. that being said, um, it's important. So I don't have an age cutoff. Um, I do have that very real serious conversation with those patients to let them know 
hey, you're young, right? You're 38, you're 40, 42, whatever you may be. This is probably not the last time that either myself or another orthopedic surgeon is going to be in your hip or your knee. I don't know how long this is going to last. Try to take care of it as best as you can by keeping your weight down, remaining active, but don't be stupid, right? Like if you want to go out and run two or three miles a couple times a week to get your endorphins up, keep your weight down, cardiovascular health. I mean, you know that better than me. I mean, as an internal medicine doctor, I think the benefits far outweigh any risks. And there is there was a study down out in California that showed ultra marathoners that had hip and knee replacements that showed they had no increased incidence of early or premature failure with hip or knee replacements. So there's been simulator studies that have suggested that, but now we're talking real life ultra marathoners. Mm. So would I say, hey, let's operate on every 38-year-old that comes in with hip or knee arthritis? No, you try conservative things first, but I do not draw a hard line in the sand and say, wait until you're 55 or 60 or whatever your number may be, because it's just a number, right? I've seen 67, 68-year-olds that look like they're 40, and I've seen 40-year-olds that look like they're 80. It's it, Physiologically, they can be very much older than their chronological age. So to me, it's like treat the patient, treat the disease, and, and offer suggestions, offer options, and really look at like the pluses and minuses and, and s- try to assess like how bad this is really affecting their quality of life. It's preve- if it's preventing them from working, right? They can't provide for themselves. They can't provide for their families. If it's preventing them from being physically active, they're starting to gain weight. They're going to probably get diabetes or some other metabolic condition. Um, I think you need to strongly consider it yeah. and just consult them and educate them on that. Yeah. You and I are in the same wavelength. I mean, I'm about getting people back to work. Um, be productive. You know, and, and, be, and, you know, being productive. And so you've operated on a couple of my patients that I've sent to you that are, are very young um, that uh, are now back at work. And so I'm appreciative of that. Well, thank you for your trust. Yeah, yeah sure. Absolutely. So now you get to move into the fun stuff, the personal questions. Yeah, so uh, personal questions. Um, so uh, I'm a car guy, and you're a little bit of a car guy too. So you have a car, you have a truck. So what's going to replace your truck, and what's going to replace your car? It, it, were you talking with my wife before this? Because she's always trying to get me to buy a new vehicle. Okay. So uh, my truck has like 120, uh, actually 130,000 miles on it. Okay. My um my car, Corvette, it's 2017, has close to 30,000 miles. I'm not the guy that collects anything and lets it sit in a garage or sit on a shelf. We'll talk about shoes later, but I wear my shoes. I drive my cars. Um, so my car, do I have plans of maybe, and I'm, I've always been a Corvette guy. So if I get another sports car, it would be another Corvette. Like the new models, but um, I don't like the fact that they're all automatic. I want a, a manual transmission. So I don't think I'd ever get rid of my current Corvette. I really like it. You know, it's it's a 2017. It's it's a model. It, it's an older model compared to the newer stuff, but I still like it. My boys love it. And I just enjoy driving it. Truck, um, actually, I, I pre-ordered um, one of the electric Hummer EV trucks three years ago. Wow. Yeah. And okay. they are telling me, that now I won't get it until 2025, five years. I'm like, are you kidding me? So, and, and at the same time, I, I kind of pre-ordered uh, one of the EV Hummer SUVs. Um, not Was never going to get both of them, but it was like, all right, if one becomes available before the other, uh, I'll do that one. Well, the, the truck was released six months or so before the SUV. So, and I like the truck much better, but 
I'm not waiting until 2025. Yeah. I mean, I've already waited three years and, I, and I'm a very patient guy. Like my wife's like, get a new car, get a new truck. I'm like, I'm fine. Yeah. My car gets me from point to B. My truck gets me from point A to B. But um, I did actually put all the specs in on the Hummer SUV EV, which is supposed to be built. I'm not, I'm not counting any chickens. Um, it's supposed to be built sometime this fall. All right. So I'm thinking maybe winter, but it'll probably be 2025. That's cool. So that's cool. Yeah. Um, what's your uh, next big trip coming up? I know you and I both, I love to travel. You love to travel. What's your next uh, big trip coming up? So we've got a couple like smaller trips coming up. Um, this November, my, um, my wife's cousin's husband. So Pete, the guy that we, we won the, uh, him and I won the member guest at Kakwa yeah. together. Um, it's his 50th birthday or it was a couple months back. So the him and his wife, Karen and myself, and then another couple from Michigan, mutual friends, we're going to the Bahamas for like four or five days. Cool. Bahamar is the resort that we're staying at. Um, the big trip, though, that I'm really looking forward to that we really actually start to need to plan. You know how I went to Italy for two weeks last mm-hmm. October, brought my family. Unfortunately, my in-laws weren't able to make it, but my parents were. My, my dad's Italian. Well, my in-laws are, my wife's Greek, so my mother-in-law is Greek. I, and maybe they haven't even heard this yet, but um, I'm inviting them and uh, want to bring them to Greece. And same cousin's husband and her, his wife, they're Greek too. And they have two boys, Georgie and Nicholas. Karen and I were talking, we want to do a Greece trip next summer for probably a couple weeks too, so that we can kind of like get our boys to be able to appreciate both cultures. Cool. Cool. Oh. Um, last but not least, um, you know, I've known you for a number of years. I didn't realize you were a Michael Jordan fan, and I see a lot of Jordan uh, paraphernalia. I see you've actually even met him. There's a picture of you with uh, Michael Jordan. Um, That's magic. But yeah, Excuse me, magic. Okay. Yeah, it, it looks like him in that one photo, but I've, I unfortunately, I've never met Jordan, but, okay. but I am a huge, huge Jordan fan. Have you seen him uh, play live? Have you ever been to a Bulls game? You know, I mean, obviously, he's retired now, but I mean... Yeah, just just curious. So, 1993 October preseason game was played at the Pittsburgh Civic Arena. They had just won three consecutive championships. I literally took all the money that I had. 1993, I would have been like 14, almost 15 years old at the time, and I um, he I bought the tickets like in the spring. He retired that summer to go play baseball. Okay. I did, and, and I'm talking the seats were right behind the Bulls bench. Ended up going to the game with my good buddy. Got to see and meet Scotty Pippen. Got to go and see, um, they were playing the 76ers. I remember Sean Bradley, the seven foot, um, I think he's seven foot six, um, tall, gangly white guy, was playing for the uh, Sixers. Jeff Hornacek, I got to meet him. He was one of my favorite players too. And, but I did not get to see Jordan. It was like, I almost felt like, God so good yeah. and then it just didn't happen i got to see the bulls play for the first time um this past spring i took anthony our oldest we went to chicago for his birthday just him and i and we went we went to a bulls game and we went to a nice steak dinner and and we enjoyed everything we got to see all the banners hanging up there so i've yet to meet him um i mean i'm watching the last dance over here on this tv yeah, you see yeah. jordan's jersey right there but um and this guy john paxson actually his uh his son was one of the guys that I met when we were just out there this spring. So it's on my bucket list. All Michael, right. if you're listening, 
Um, I wear Jordans all the time. Every single episode, I showcase another pair of Jordans. So let's get you on this. Let's get you on Hey yeah. Sawbones. Yeah, so. I think I think it'd be great. See? Yeah. So I uh, yeah I mean obviously he was part of the '80s and uh, I was more of a wrestling fan, not a basketball fan. But obviously, I realize what a phenomenal athlete. You know, he was and is and still is to this day. So and competitor, right? That that was uh, and, and honestly, Dave, um, a lot of people ask me like, like what drives you professionally, this and that. And it sounds like a little dorky, but it, it comes from my childhood. It's my parents, especially my dad. And it's Michael Jordan. It was just like never, uh, never say never, never like failure is not an option. Yeah. And when you feel like you don't have any more, you just go out and you give everything you got. Yeah. Yeah. So that's cool. I love it. Love it. Ready to roll reverse? Ready to roll. Yep. So, all right. First business question. Yep. All right. Um, it's going to be a, a little business, a little personal, but it, it's primarily business. So you're a Cleveland guy, right? You, yep. you did your undergrad there. You did your med school there. Then you went and did some time uh, with the Navy, your internship, your residency, and spent some time in, in Japan. You spent some time on a, a aircraft carrier, right? right. Yeah. Um, so professionally, what would you say was the, the moment where you kind of knew that you wanted to do internal medicine? Was it, uh, I mean, you knew you, you, that the Navy was going to pay for your education, right? Right. Did you know that, was it early in med school that you wanted to do internal medicine? Did you, cause your so grandfather was a surgeon, right? Yeah. So don't laugh too loud. So I went to Case Western in the first two years of <laughs> medical school. I said repeatedly, I'm going to be an orthopedic surgeon. And I kept doing orthopedic surgery rotations. And no offense, I found the cases to be very tedious, very boring. I wanted to scratch my nose. I couldn't. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I was the guy. And so my very last rotation of my third year of med school was internal medicine. And so when I was on OBGYN or when I was on psychiatry, I was really sort of fascinated with a person's blood pressure and their diabetes. And, and, you know, the, and I was really annoying to these uh, general and orthopedic surgeons. Well, what about the blood sugar of 400? And they would look at me with, and sort of scoff and say, well, what about the sugar of 400? Just consult medicine. So my very last rotation was internal medicine, and it, the light bulbs went off. I uh, did it at Metro Hospital in Cleveland. Um, absolutely, light bulbs went off. Uh, everything clicked. Um, I, di- I don't like taking care of sick children. I don't like taking care of pregnant women. Severely psychiatric patients are not my thing. Um, no offense. I think standing in the OR for hours and hours is really boring. God bless you for doing <laughs> that. Um, and I know you think that the same of me in terms of being in clinic, but um, so just the light bulbs went off, you know, connecting with really interesting patients. Uh, Cleveland Metro Hospital was a wonderful hospital um, as a medical student. They're such a busy hospital. They actually needed me as a student, you know, to, to kind of fill in. So light bulbs just went off my third year. It was the last rotation I did. So that's, I mean, that's what it is, right? Like yeah. you, that I remember in med school, one of the very first like questions that we were posed like day one or day two, it was the first week for sure. They said, are you going to be a surgeon or are you going to be in medicine? There was, it was like black and white. Right. And I was like, what? Like, how do I know that right now? And they're like, no, seriously, you got to decide it. Are you surgery or are you medicine? And, um, you know, because I didn't think initially that I was going to be a surgeon. That wasn't my goal. It was, I wanted to be a primary care physician and I wanted to do kind of sports medicine, non-operative, like Greg Coppola, 
Yeah. Do, do you know Greg? Yeah. yeah that, that, that was my mentor that uh, kind of convinced me to go to medical school. Um, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a Greg Coppola. And then when I got into an operating room, unlike you, um, my light bulb went off, but it was for that purpose, right? I was like, holy crap, I can use power tools. I can, I can um, use mallets. I can pound sharp metal objects into people's bone and, and improve their quality of life. It was just like, it was the same thing, but just opposite. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of your, um, your military background, is that something that you had in your family? Is that something that it was it kind of like, hey, they can pay for my school. I got to go do my time. Do, or did you have a sense of obligation like that? That Because if there's one thing that I've always kind of not regretted, but like if I could, I, I do wish that I could have served and helped protect our country. And I'm very honored for people like yourself. Bill Spiros was one of my guests too. So Air Force Academy, your Navy. Um what was your influence on that? Well, um, so even as a young child, I've always been fascinated by World War II, uh, World War One. Um, you know, I, I always was fascinated. I was a little kid. I remember, you know, spending uh, hours on you know Time Life uh, magazine books. Um, so was always fascinated in military history. Don't laugh too loud when I say this, but um, a light bulb moment in my life was in 1984 when Top Gun. The movie came out and a farm kid from Ohio seeing those jets take off from the Enterprise and, you know, watching Tom Cruise and, and just seeing how exciting that was. Uh, I knew at a young age that somehow, some way I wanted to get on an aircraft carrier because I have glasses back then. You couldn't be a pilot if you had glasses. Now they fix your eyes with LASIK or PRK. But that was, for me, a farm kid, um, you know, kind of, I hate to use the word stuck, but, you know, stuck on a farm in Ohio. The thought of going to sea, seeing those jets, um, that really was inspiring to me. And uh, so, um, you know, so, you know, you know, once the wheels started turning and I kind of figured I wanted to go medical school and I heard at John Carroll that the Navy had a scholarship, uh, you know, they're just, you know, and again, I didn't have money to go to medical school. So, again, light bulbs were going off. So I was laser focused on getting that Navy scholarship and, uh, you know, very grateful um, for that. So, you know, so someone was just out of sense of duty, interest in history. Um, uh, but really, you know, again, I, I know it sounds silly to be influenced that much by a movie, but it really influenced me as a kid. Just kind of like, you know, yeah, you, that's no different than me being influenced by yeah, Michael Jordan. Right? Yeah, and and so, it's funny that you mentioned that movie because Matt Zim, um, ophthalmologist, I, I I kind of think of him, him as like my equivalent on the ophthalmology world. Like mm -hmm. he practices very much the same. He's very business oriented, very entrepreneurial. He's an amazing surgeon. Um, but he also was very highly influenced by Top Gun and really considered going to the Naval Academy. Yeah. Um, ended up not doing it, but that was a huge influence. And and I don't think it's silly at all. I mean, because you're, you're but I guess... Yeah. This is part B. I don't want to waste my third business question. I'm, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm going to cheat here a little bit. Um, it's my podcast. I can do this. <laughs> but do, do you, after you did it, were you kind of like this, like, did you regret it at all? Or were you kind of like this? I'm so glad I did this. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And I'm super, I'm one of those people. I'm glad to pay my federal taxes. I'm always will be uh, grateful to the Navy. I have a son in the Marine Corps right now. Um, Really, really glad I did it. The only reason why I didn't stay in is, uh, A, I wanted to settle down, and then the military, you move, 
And B, as you go up in rank in the military, you do end up doing more administrative stuff and less patient care. And I, I, I my weakness is administration and my strength is patient care. Um, so it was sort of a natural move to uh, get out. So really, really glad I did it. And it has brought me a lot of success, I think, at Hammett, because the one thing that I do where I see a lot of physicians sort of cut their career short is I really uh, believe in following the chain of command. Um, I really, to this day, I when I have a, a grievance or a concern, I start with my office manager, her manager, and I, I follow the chain of command, and I don't go right to the CEO at Hammett. And I, I've seen physicians that have had gripes, and I'm not saying their gripes were illegitimate, but bypass the entire chain of command and go right to the CEO or right to the COO and really sort of upset the the kettle cart. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm sort of grateful in the, that the military taught me that lesson about, you know, following the chain of command both up and down, you know, so... Um, it's there for a reason, right? It's there for a reason. And so, you know, again, I, 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 I think that, um, you know... Uh, you know, without getting too far, I, I really enjoy working for UPMC, but it is very much hierarchical. And, uh, you know, I, I try hard to follow, you know, that hierarchy in terms of going up and going down, whether I have concerns, you know, so I think that was a, a lesson that really was very helpful to me uh, when I was in the military. That's a great point. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. and I think that's probably very uh, influenced by your military background. I think so. Yeah, right? it really was. Yeah, I had a a uh, medical officer, a chief medical officer on the aircraft carrier that was, uh, you know, great guy. His name is Michael Krentz. Um, he was a uh, uh, trauma doc out of Ben Taub, out of uh, Texas, um, flight surgeon. Did, he did airstrikes over Bosnia, and um, he enforced and, and demanded respect and following the chain of command. Great guy, had a good sense of humor, but... Uh, you know, you, you really felt his presence when he was in the room. And, um, you know, so, and I tried to carry that over uh, to Hammett and be respectful of, of the people that, quite frankly, are my bosses. And yeah. I think that has worked out well. Not being a brown nose, not, not trying to be a suck up, but res- showing respect, yeah. um, you know, saying thank you, um, you know, like giving respect, you oftentimes receive respect too. Exactly, is what you I know, found. So it's again, like it's a mutual not, thing. Not that I'm trying to get favors or anything like that, but it's just you know, and uh, I think that's worked well for me. Yeah. So my last business question, and it's kind of similar to what you asked me too about like hardest part or least favorite part, but um, if you if you don't mind, um, and obviously we're not going to talk about like any patient identifying stuff, sure. respecting HIPAA. And this may this is probably a hard question because you've been doing medicine for decades um can you can you share with me either a specific example of of a patient interaction or just one of the most challenging interactions you've had with patients or staff in your career and then on the the flip side one of the most gratifying experiences with, with one of your patients or one of your staff in your career yeah hands down the hardest thing that i see in my job is stubborn foolish arrogant, elderly patients that refuse to leave their home and to go into assisted living or to receive the care that's being provided by their family because, quote unquote, they don't want to bother anybody. And so these are my patients who I love, but they end up on invariably on the floor 
Um, they end up seeing the orthopedic surgeon with broken hips, uh, closed head injuries, uh, falling down the stairs. I had a patient that the house burned down and they burned down in it. So I'm super frustrated when I see um, elderly patients that stubbornly, you know, say, cling to their home that they've lived in for 55 years. And I, and I don't want anybody to help me. And they sort of refuse to accept help. Very challenging because invariably their kids live out of town. Invariably, they end up at the bottom of the stairs. Invariably, um, they end up, you know, quite bitter. Mm -hmm. um, that is a, probably one of my least favorite things that I see. And I see it frequently, unfortunately, in my office. And it's really sad and really disheartening um, um, because you know how the story is going to end. What about the flip side? Yeah, the flip side is, you know, um, the one thing I love about primary care <laughs> is, you know, you really become ingrained in these people's lives you know, their spouses, you know, their kids. Um, sometimes you've been to their weddings, you've been to their cookouts. And, you know, so when you can, um, you know, sort of see them through the different challenges in their life, whether it's through, you know, them dealing with cancer or losing one of their spouses or even their own deaths, you know, so I'm always very touched whenever I see my name mentioned in people's obituaries in the newspaper, you know, people taking the time to thank me for helping them, you know, with their death or with the dying process. Um, you know, so really, you know, becoming enmeshed with these people, you know, really loving these people and caring for these people and really becoming part of their families and very much part of their lives. And, um, you know, so over the years, I, you know, I, I've said to patients, and I think I'm going to do this, I, I uh, often will say to patients, look, I want you to do what I'm telling you to do, because I want you to come to my retirement party, which is in about 10 years. And I've actually thought about throwing a massive retirement party at the convention center when I retire. And I'm going to invite all your patients, all my patients. Can I come? Well, you're one of my patients. Exactly. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and I'm going to do it right. I'm going to order, I'm going to get a, a, a one or two bands. I'm going to cater it and I'm going to throw a massive bash. Um, you know, cause right now I, you know, I've got 2,500, 3,500 patients and, um, you know, uh, I honestly think in the last one or two years of my career, I'm going to be having pre-printed, um, you know, invitations I'm going to be giving to people and, um, yeah. And that's fun. That's a great feeling to kind of, to, to know that. And, to, uh, yeah, yeah to, to be of, able to celebrate that. Cause I, I can say this, you are my physician as a physician. I'm, we, we tend to be bad patients and it took my wife many years of prodding for me to even get a physician yeah. and I went almost a decade with no never going to the doctor right never having a checkup never having my blood drawn never having this never having that and um, I'm not saying I'm the best at this point but like yeah, pretty good definitely better than average number one I have a tremendous amount of respect for you Thanks. professionally personally you're an amazing physician you do an amazing job and the thing I love about you most is when I'm with you in that exam room you're with me. And I feel like I'm the only person, right? Tried like to. you're extraordinarily genuine. You're focused. You're not thinking about this person or that person. You're, you're dialed in. You, I mean, you and I have a friendship outside of that, but like, I, I just have this feeling cause I, I, I have a lot of mutual patients and, and they all feel the same way as I do is like, you know, them, you ask them personal questions that have nothing to do with their health. And that is so important yeah. to them. So keep up the great work. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I've got I've got some great, great people, uh, you know, all walks of life, uh, 
know, immigrants, whites, black, wealthy, poor. You know, people have often talked to me about doing concierge medicine, and I have 0.0 interest in taking care of wealthy, well-to-do white people all day. <laughs> not that not that I don't like those patients, yeah. and that's a big part of my practice, but I love my immigrant patients. Yeah. I love my web tech guys that are, you know, working. You know, I love the guys that are, you know, plumbers, and, you know, I love the different walks of life that I have, the Gannon students, the Mercier students, the... You know the single moms. I I like that diversity. You know, so it the, is the, nice, the, right? the thought the thought of uh, just taking care of upper crust, which I like them too, is to me is somewhat abhorrent and seems really boring. Yeah. Um. So you know, I I'm sure it keeps it fresh when you're yeah. when you're seeing kind of all walks of yeah, life. Yeah. You know, and, and these people from you know are coming from war torn Ukraine and they tell me some of their stories. You know, it's really, you know, sort of churning, um, mm-hmm. you know, really uh, what these people have been through. And um, so, and I, I just love that. I love the different fabrics that, that come in. So, yeah. Yeah. So. Ready for some personal questions? Yep, absolutely. All right. So. I haven't uh, dodged one yet, so. No, you're pretty good. I think these are where people dodge them. Though. It's the, it, 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 no one has yet, but if they okay. were to. So we've spent some time together personally. Mm-hmm. Um, we did an awesome hike in, was it the Laurel Highlands? Laurel Highlands, yeah. Um, a couple years ago, it was you, myself, Bill Spiros. You've done multiple hikes in the Appalachian Trails. You've done the Pacific Coast Trail, correct? Part of it, yep. Um, and you recently were just in the Adirondacks? Adirondacks, yeah, just last week, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I kind of know what you like to do. Right, you're you're an outdoors guy. You like to get that fresh air. You like to exercise. Yeah. Um, you like to spend time with your your wife Carol, um, your kids. But like, what's your ultimate like? If if you were not an internal medicine doctor and not in the Navy, what would you do with your life? That's a good question. Um, I would probably be a teacher. Um, I enjoy teaching. I could see me easily being a uh, high school or college, you know, biology teacher. Um, you know, part of me is still a farm kid in Ohio. Um, I sort of uh, jokingly uh, tell Carol I'd like to get a couple cattle, a uh, head of cattle. Um, you know, so I I think uh, I could see my life, you know, having a small bee farm and being a high school or small college biology professor. I think if I wasn't doing this... Um, I really do love being outdoors. Um, that's where I think I'm happiest. And I really thrive. So, is the the beef cattle farm like um, like an unrealistic dream, or is that something that you're serious about? Maybe someday doing. Yeah, someday doing. Yeah. So, for example, uh, we're going to be potentially buying a gig and second home in Ocala, Florida, which is a horse cattle part of uh, Florida, and they have situations down there where. I'm going to use the word commune, and that's not the right word, where basically you work on these cattle farms and you can reap some of the profits in terms of some of the beef, some of the grains, some of the vegetables, et cetera. Um, you know, because obviously a farm can tie you down. That appeals to me heavily. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I want to travel with Carol when I retire, and so I don't want to get tied down too much with cattle. But if I could work on a farm and I could be a, a laborer on a farm um, and be part of that, that would be highly appealing to me. Yeah. So did you know I grew up on a beef farm? I did not know that. Yeah, down down in that. Townville, Pennsylvania. So okay. at any one point, I mean, it was a hobby farm. Like my dad was a teacher in Meadville. My mom was a beautician. She had her shop in our 
parents' house for over 50 years, uh, just retired a couple of years ago when she got a shoulder injury, but she's in her mid-70s, right? Mm-hmm. But um, we had anywhere between maybe 15 to 20 head of, of, of beef cattle. And quite honestly, it was like, at the time, I was like, oh, I got to go out to the barn in the morning or in the evenings and, um, you know, shovel manure, bed the cows, feed the cows. In the summer, I had to do hay, had to fix the fence, had to weed eat around the fence. My parents heated their house with wood, but like, my goodness, how much I like value that, that experience now. And, and like, I feel a little bad for my boys that they, they don't have a similar, it's always been a worry of mine that like, maybe they would be a little too coddled. Um, we have a very nice house. We have a very nice, comfortable life, but like that work ethic, because that sure. was instilled in me so very young that I try my best, you know, we'll send them down to my parents' place and they don't have any beef cattle anymore, but my sisters are there and they live a little bit simpler life, but um, they're very, very hardworking people. My parents and my sisters and myself in different aspects, they're all teachers. So I love that the fact that you, you, you mentioned teaching and farming because that resonates very deeply with me. All three of my sisters are teachers in some respect. My dad was a teacher for 31 years in Meadville. Karen is a teacher. My aunts were teachers. My uncles, teachers, friends were teachers. No one was in medicine. So yeah, it's it's near and dear to my heart. Too. Yeah, good, good. I love it. Yeah, no, I I think you know you and I both work hard. I mean, you get up at four four thirty in the morning. I'm about five five thirty. Some of that I think goes back to my childhood. You know, and and you know people often say, you know, geez, Dave, why do you work so hard, or how do you work so hard? You don't know anything. That, you know that that just comes from my upbringing. Yeah, you know, and and uh, you know how do you weather the storm? Well. You know, whether the weather's bad or good, the cattle need to be fed. Yeah. You know, and, you know, whether you feel good or not, whether you have a temperature of 102 or not, the cattle need to be fed. So I, I think that sort of resonates with me in terms of, you know, you know, I've worked uh, just this February. I slipped on some stairs and I broke two ribs. I was at work the next day. It was a long day. It was a miserable day. I couldn't wait to go home. But you, you don't miss work. do you? I'm not going to miss work. You know what I mean? And, how, how many times in your career have you missed work? Yeah, so I had a lumbar laminectomy with a fusion on my 50th birthday, and I was actually given six weeks off, and that was six fabulous weeks with my wife. But that was uh, that was it, and uh, I very rarely, I you could count on less than three fingers days that I've missed because of illness or injury. Um, um, that those six weeks off were were it was pretty cool. Um, our slowest time of the year is January because people have co-pays, et cetera. Yeah. So my surgery was December 17th. So the six it weeks. It worked was, out well. Get, per, re- Christmas, recover a little bit through the Christmas, holidays. New Year's. Yeah. January is always the slowest month. So my uh, partners didn't get hammered too much with my patients. It was perfect. Um, and actually, I really, really enjoyed that time with my wife. Just six weeks alone with her because uh, our kids are all grown and gone. Um, but again, without getting too far off the subject. But um, you know, I, I really believe in a, a strong work ethic, getting up, Nose of the grindstone. Um, good days, bad. Whether you got a stuffy nose or not, um, you know I'm I'm going to be there. So. You, you, you plug away. Yeah. I'm, I, same thing. Two days in about eighteen or nineteen yeah, years, and yeah. one was a an abscess I had in a tooth, and I was like septic. And Karen made me go, and and it, rightfully so. I was on call that night, and the second one was I was doing a knee replacement. This is probably six or seven years ago. And I was lifting a very heavy leg, and I like literally pulled my back. Thankfully, it was nothing serious, but could not move. And I was like, oh. and I, I had to cancel my next day's surgeries. Uh, I was only out one day with that. 
and came back to, fortunately, that was my last day in the OR, had clinic for us a week, was able to get on some steroids, um, you know, and just kind of tough it through. But yeah. yeah, same thing. You know, you do what you got to do because these people rely on you. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, all right. Next personal question. Sure. Um, have I asked one or two so far? Two. Okay. That's okay. So final one. Yep. If you had to say there was one person, and maybe it can be two, that influenced you in your life more than anybody else to become the man that you are, the physician that you are, the husband that you are, the father that you are, and the friend that you are, who would that be? Oh, boy, that's a tough question because uh, I've had a number of really, really great influences. Um, you know, so I had a, a, a really great uncle, uh, Seymour Reifman. He was an oral surgeon in Cleveland and a uh, very prominent oral surgeon, uh, uncle of mine. And when I began at John Carroll, I was not I was not a good high school student. I was into wrestling. I was into girls. Uh, I had low GPA. We had to pull strings for me even to get into John Carroll. Um, and I had met him, you know, I'd uncle, uh, Seymour said, you know, what are you thinking about doing? I'm like, well, you know, maybe I'm going to make it to nursing school, you know, maybe PT school. And he said that, you know, that's fantastic. He's like, but you know, if you try just a little bit harder, just a little bit harder and, and, and just give one semester, you know, no girls, no drinking, no football games, just one semester, do the best you can do the best you can. Maybe you could go to medical school. So I took his advice in that first semester of John Carroll. You know, I, you know, I really, crushed did, really crushed it and made the Dean's list. And, and, uh, you know, so that was like the first person that sort of really believed in me that, you know, that look, you're a bright kid. You can have a bright future. Um, and John Carroll has a wonderful uh, pre-med program where basically they give you a checklist and if you achieve this checklist, they sort of pick up the phone and call the medical school you want to go to. Um, so that was a, a big turning point in my life. Um, I will say that, you know, really I had, you know, I really enjoyed Case Western uh, for medical school. I had some great influences in the Navy, um, hardworking, smart, dedicated. So, it, you know, I'm going to use a number here and I hope I don't offend people out there, but, um, you know, uh, uh, a neurosurgeon in in the Navy is going to make about a hundred and thirty thousand. Um, so you had surgeons, highly skilled surgeons in the military there because of the love of the Navy, the love of medicine, not to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, not that one hundred thirty thousand isn't a lot of money. So I hope I'm not offending people out there saying just one hundred. But relatively speaking, but relatively speaking, yeah. you know, to the civilian world, we're talking about potentially one tenth what they make, and so those type of influences in the military were, you know, very key for me. I mean, these were guys that were, you know, well-trained orthopedic surgeons that, you know, specifically they they wanted to operate on Navy SEALs. They wanted to operate on fighter pilots. They wanted to operate on guys that were driving ships. Um, That was very influential to me, you know, sort of, you know, teaching me the lesson of like, don't worry about the money, just do a good job, be a good physician, So I think those would be my two big influences. You know, I'm sorry to say, and I don't want to disparage my father. You know, I was a bit of a goofball as a kid. And, you know, my father was a bit surprised when I told him I was going to medical school. You know, he sort of guffawed. You know, Mm -mm. really? You're thinking about going to medical school? You're you're kind of a a wacko, you know? (laughs) And uh, so, 
although he was a loving father and a, a good man, you know, he, he definitely was not the, the guy that was sort of encouraging me. So um, I've had a couple of really great influences since then. So awesome. Yeah. Well, I love hearing stories. Yeah. I love it. And you know, it's when you think you know somebody fairly well and we spent some time together, not sure. a ton of time, yeah. but like I've learned so much just in this hour that we've been chatting yeah. and my respect for you again, personally and professionally has, has grown by leaps and bounds just because hearing this and like what makes you tick, right? That That's honestly why I started this podcast was to share my story, what makes me tick personally and professionally, but to share other people that I really, really appreciate, really, really value what makes them tick and what has made them successful so that we can hopefully influence our, the next generation, whether it's, you know, my children, the next generation's children to, you know, reach for the stars, right? Work hard, be dedicated, be diligent, have grit, have determination. And really the sky's the limit. I truly believe. And if you find the right path, find the right mentors um, and, and put your mind to it, you can really do whatever you kind of want to do. I agree. I agree. I know it sounds cliche. You can do whatever you want to do, but I, I agree. You know, you know, really, you know, I'm sure that there's cold, wet, rainy, February mornings where you probably are not too excited about driving an hour and 25 minutes to your surgery center. And there's a cold, wet, rainy, uh, you know, March mornings where I'd really like to stay home and just stay in bed. But it's about getting up, facing the day, um, strapping on and uh, doing the right thing for our, our patients. And, and uh, you know, really, um, you know, and then the words we, re, re, we reap from that in terms of being able to you know, take trips to Greece, you know, take care of our family, uh, send our kids to college. That's a secondary benefit, but I, I'm with you. I, I'm about grit. I'm about determination. I'm about honesty. I'm about integrity. I'm about, you know, you know, providing the best care I can for my patients. Um, you know, I want to make mistakes, address them and, uh, you know, try to do better. So love you brother. Yeah, so too. before we go to the next section, yeah. you just reminded me of a story that I want to tell. Bill Spiros, you're going to love this story. So, and I told this to you on the golf course last time we played. So Dave is an avid hiker and um, he invited us to go to the Laurel Highlands tra uh, trail a couple years ago. And we're going to do, was it a three night? Three nights. Yep. Hike. Um, and I was super excited because I always wanted to do this. It was kind of like getting away, unplugging, no cell phone, guys time, campfires, you know, sweating during the day getting some miles in, pushing your body to limits. Um, both Bill and I were kind of doing some keto stuff at that time. So depriving ourselves of stuff that we enjoyed, carbohydrates. And, you know, they, I think it was like day one and we show up and we're like all excited and we're hiking and, and we've all got our hiking shoes on. And this is going to actually segue into the next um, segment here with the, 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 what we call the seventh inning sawbones shoe stretch. But um, it wasn't even, we didn't even make day two and Bill was in his hiking boots and, and literally the soles fell off of both of his shoes on day one. And he's like, well, I got duct tape. And he's like, I'm fine. And they were like flapping off the, the front part of his toes and everything. And he, he duct taped the soles back on and had no traction or tread. And literally it, it, his shoes just blew out after that. And he kind of like, said it's time to retire these shoes and fortunately he brought some some tennis shoes to wear and he literally only brought these for like when we get to the campsite like campfires i think i brought sandals for that time i did not have a backup pair of like hiking or tennis shoes i just had my my, my hiking 
shoes and he wears these tennis shoes, but like he hung his shoes over the overpass. Was that Interstate 80? It's Interstate 80. Yeah. yeah and and I'm going to, Jay, when you edit this, I'm going to get you a photo of that so you can put it in there. But the real story here is, you know, Dave is like a robot when he's hiking and he's hiking and he's hiking. And he's just like, he doesn't get tired. You know, I've got really long legs. Bill's not as tall as me, but has pretty long legs. And Dave is probably six to eight inches shorter than right, me. Right. But just like a powerhouse. He just keeps going and going. He's got like a steady pace. His his stride is nowhere near as long as mine, but like he doesn't slow down. He's like, he's got one pace uphill, downhill. It's the same pace. And I don't, it wasn't day one. I think it was day two. It was our one of our longer hikes. And, um, you know, we're coming up to like where we were going to camp. And both Bill and I are like, oh my gosh, this is getting long. Like, are, are we close? And Dave's like, yep, we're, we're, we're pretty close, pretty close. I, I think he was just trying to motivate us to not quit. And I mean, every tenth of a mile, we're asking him for like 30 tenths of a mile. And then we finally get to the turnoff to go to our camp. And we're like, oh, thank God we're here. And he goes, yep, we, we just have a short hike back into the camp. And we're like, okay, cool. We, we start hiking back into the camp. It is maybe exaggerating, but it's like two miles back into the camp off of the, the main trail. So we get to the campfire and we're like, God, how many miles did we hike today? And Dave's like, ah, oh, probably like 18, 19. And Bill and I are like, no, like I have my phone on. I have my pedometer on. It's, it's tracking all this. It was like 21, 22 miles. And Dave's like, no, 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 no. To, to the point where we turned off was like 18 or 19 miles. I'm like, yeah, how about the point where we turned off and we had to walk and hike two miles back to the camp? And Dave's like, that doesn't count. I'm like, that absolutely counts because the terrain didn't change. It wasn't like it was blacktop and you're, you're going downhill and it was like a, you took a, a bike down. We were walking up and down. I felt like one of those times it was actually more difficult walking off of the trail to the camp. I think that was when we met your daughter. Sure. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, it was up. It was down. And but. He he was the ultimate like tour guide. He he kind of like smiled. Was and, it the Navy side of you or what was it that was trying know. to convince us to yeah. keep going? Yeah, but keep going. Yeah, well, there's no helicopter. Talk about well, integrity. You lied to us. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, sawbone shoe stretch. Yeah, those so are, those are called the Hutzel miles. Yeah. yeah, we did. We we referred that as like a Hutzel unit. We're like, what's the equivalent of one mile? Well, a Hutzel unit's like a one mile is equivalent to two point seven Hutzel units. So. That's right. Sawbone shoe stretch. Yeah. I, I ask all my guests to kind of bring or wear some of their favorite shoes or a, a pair of shoes that has like meaning or a story to them. So what are you wearing here? Yeah. So these are uh, some hiking shoes. So I wore these. Uh, we hiked Mount Algonquin uh, last week and Mount Cascade. And, um, you know, I've had a variety of different hobbies over the years. I've been a scuba diver. I raced motorcycles, um, uh, shooting guns. Uh, I've just picked up golf. Um, and you know, uh, truth be told, I was not in a good spot in, uh, 2014, 2015. Um, you know, I think Carol and I weren't getting along real well. We're sending kids off to college. Um, we're hemorrhaging cash. We have two girls at Villa, a son of Virginia tech. Um, and I just was just not a real happy guy. Um, and, uh, um, I, uh, had heard about hiking on the Appalachian Trail. And in September of 2015, I started um, at the Delaware Water Gap. That's the New Jersey-Pennsylvania border. 
And I just assumed that in six days I was going to hike from there to Harrisburg. Uh, I assumed that everybody hiked 25 to 30 miles a day. Were those like my miles or your miles? My miles. (laughs) And um, so I set off and um, I had a ridiculously heavy backpack, uh, two flashlights, a taser, um, completely unprepared and and literally... um, uh, was humbled to the point of, of tears on that trip. Uh, you know, my feet were split open. Uh, I ran out of water. At one point in time, I'm siphoning water out of a mud puddle. Um, I very much relied on the, the kindness and generosity of, um, of uh, strangers. Uh, just a very humbling trip. Uh, didn't make it anywhere near Harrisburg. Um, it just uh, basically was a, it was a very difficult, hard um, hike, but was filled with uh, memories, was filled with kindness from other people. Were you alone? I was. Wow. And, um, it, it, you know, truth be told, it was a time where my marriage wasn't wasn't great. I, I It just wasn't for a variety of reasons. And um, coming home, um, I live on Lord Road in Fairview. My wife stopped the car in the middle of the road demanded that I get out of the car and uh, embraced me in this uh, you know, very tender, very loving embrace in the middle of Lord Road. And if you know my wife, who is a fantastic woman, she's a very private woman and is not into public display of affection. Um, and that was a turning point in our marriage and just to come home and to be able to have water without effort and food and a clean bed and... and um, it, it sort of really uh, saved my life. It sort of recentered me in terms wow. of uh, realizing how blessed I was, that I needed to be a bit more grateful for my wife, my children, my home, water, food, health, things that I was taking for granted. And so I sort of fell in love with the Appalachian Trail, fell in love with the beauty and the challenge of hiking. And in terms of like even that hike that you and I did on Laurel Highlands, how it was only three days, but it, it really was difficult. I mean, we were all really, really tired. I mean, I remember that lunch that we had afterwards. And so hiking for me is sort of a purification process. It's mentally, spiritually, physically sort of a purification process. You know, just being up in the Adirondacks last week and hiking Mount Algonquin, um, you know, realizing, look, I'm vulnerable. Uh, it's cold. It's windy. There's boulders all over. There's moose. There's bear. Um uh, yeah, so for me, these long, arduous hikes, I find them to be very recentering. So I'm wearing my uh, hiking shoes in honor of what hiking has done for me. And I think it is, uh, you know, I don't want to be melodramatic, but I believe it has, you know, saved my marriage, um, has kind of sort of just made me sort of, uh, you know, uh, grateful to God, grateful for the blessings I have. And, and I think that those hardships uh, for me that I experience when I'm hiking, um, you know, really have been good. So I've done now nine uh, different hikes in the Appalachian Trail and have explored other trails like the Pacific Coast Trail, um, the Adirondacks. I'm going to be doing some of that. And I plan on conti- returning. We were in uh, Letchworth State Park. And so I'm just going to continue that. I, th- I just find that that's uh, good for me to um, sleep on the ground, um, filter water, um, struggle a little bit. Um, I know that I hope that makes sense to people, but it, to me, it's, it's been, it's been good for me. You know, here I am driving my BMW over here and I've met you and I are, you know, a Cockwa club and, you know, all these wonderful things at our fingertips. But I think you and I both 
realize that that can be taken away in an instant. And um, we realize that we have to work for it and we, sh- we need to be grateful as I think you are and I am. And so these uh, hiking shoes sort of remind me of, you know, where I've been and, um, you know, how grateful I am for my wife, my home, my health, my career. Um, you know, again, simple things like water and, and food, yeah. uh, things that, you know, people in our country, quite frankly, struggle for. And I, you know, I am very grateful. So the hiking shoes are sort of the starting point of the whole thing. That was powerful. And so, that yeah. was awesome. Yeah, thanks. And way more than anyone has ever shared with the seventh inning shoe stretch or probably any other part of this podcast. So thank you for being vulnerable, sure, sure. for being open, for being honest. Um, thank you for inviting me on that hike several years ago. Unfortunately, our schedules haven't aligned the past couple of years, but yeah. our, I want to do yeah. one of those with yeah, you we will. We again. Will. Because we got to get sparrows too. Yeah. I mean, it was that for me too. And I'm a huge nature guy. We're actually going down to Hawking Hills in a couple of weeks um, for three nights. We're going to do, have you ever been down there? I, I have. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's a beautiful area. Yeah. I, I was last there 12 years ago when Anthony was six months old, Karen and I first kid, we were doing my fellowship in Columbus and we went and we hiked. And I remember I had the baby Bjorn on and he was on the front and then he was on the back. And when I took it off, I mean, it was, it was a dead of summer. It was, it was like July. Took it off. I am soaked from him. And I still see these photos that are beautiful. And so we're going to take all three of the boys there now. That's great. And we're, we rented a log cabin. We're just getting back to the roots, back to nature. We're going to do campfires. We're going to do cookouts. Um, I'm with you. I love nature. I love recentering. I love, because um, we do, we live a very, very privileged, very comfortable lifestyle. Um, you know, we're playing golf or this or that, sleeping in comfortable beds. But like, there is nothing better than being able to get out there smell fresh air sleep on the ground or on wood with mice crawling around you right you gave me some good hints with dryer sheets and things like that to to keep them away but um thank you for that story yeah thanks it was amazing yeah yeah it was uh yeah you know it's it's always a little difficult to be vulnerable but um i'm a better person for it and uh you know all three of my children have now been on the appalachian trail with me and i've had friends and family out there with me and um yeah, everybody that's been out there has found something different, but I think everybody comes back with a sense of gratitude. And I, I, I look forward to the time again, I know you're in kind of the vortex of life with, you know, young children and your career, but we'll be friends for a long time. And, and when the planets line, we'll get out again and, uh, it will be challenging. Uh, it will be longer than I tell you it will be, uh, <laughs> I'm going to plan the hikes. <laughs> so one place that we, before I get to my shoes, the one place that we've both been but never been together is Sedona. Oh, yeah. That we both kind of have this mutual love for. And yeah. my wife and I found it, I think, two, three years ago. Yeah. And we went, I think we actually stayed in the same hotel, right? Yeah. 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 And we now my wife and I, we've been there three times. Uh, we've taken the boys twice. Uh, we're planning another trip this is coming, like, Easter time, which is a beautiful time of the year to be out there. And every single morning, we were waking up at, we'd kind of stay in our time. So we're getting up, actually it's sleeping in a little bit because of the time change, but we would get to the trailheads like 5.45, 6 a.m. because those trailheads are not that big. They don't have a lot of parking and you had to get there early if you wanted to actually get a spot. And we would do different trails. Some days one of the boys wasn't feeling it. The other boy was, they want to do a little bit more climbing or this or that, but it was awesome. And we got to be as a family and just kind of like simplify our life. And yeah. we would go out and have amazing meals at night and we'd replenish our calories that we 
depleted during the mornings, but um, it's awesome stuff. Yeah, Just good stuff. Yeah, and yeah. it's a beautiful country right out, out there with the, yeah. the red rocks and and the canyons and everything like that. So, as always, I'm wearing a pair of Jordans. These are the Jordan Four. These are called the Animal Instincts. I literally chose these shoes for you, Dave, because of our love for the outdoors. Yeah, I love right? it. So they've got a little bit of everything. They've got some some tiger print, some leopard or cheetah stuff, some zebra stripes back here. But you can't really pick this up on the on the camera. But it's it's a fur material, the black here, and um, you know this is the Jordan fours um, have always been. I'm, I'm sorry, these are Jordan threes. I, I misspoke there. The Jordan fours uh, have always been my favorite pair. The Jordan threes are starting to grow on me more, and um, I've got a camo pair of these. I just got another pair called the um um palominos um there's i have a desert uh elephant pair where it has elephant print on it but this is the first time i've ever worn these actually and i wanted to wear it with my outdoor buddy i love it and i wore my my north face kind of hiking shirt here too as part of that but the next thing that we're going to do have you watched any of the the episodes yet i've not not yet no so you're going to be surprised by this okay yes i don't know if it's going to be a pleasant surprise or not a pleasant surprise but we do what's called the sawbones challenge right and um what we do and and one of the thoughts i had when i first started doing this together was like i wanted to get a wheel and we'd spin it and there'd be like five things on there like five options for the sawbones challenge well we've only done one so far so we're going to stick with tradition um, I know you were a wrestler growing up, but you're going to have to come into my world a little bit. All right. Okay. Sounds good. When, when you start your podcast and I'll come over to your place, we'll wrestle. We'll wrestle. But tonight. We're going to do basketball. We're going to do basketball. Okay. Right, so good. we're going to go outside. We're going to do the Sawbones Challenge. Um, we'll explain it. You guys that have been watching, you know what it is, but I'll explain it to you when we get outside. But, um, you know, once we get done, we'll come back. We'll do our little closing thing. But I just want to thank you. Sure. You know, yeah, this welcome. has been great. And uh, stick around. Sawbones Challenge is coming next. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the main event. All right, here we are. Sawbones Challenge. Yeah, there we are. Dr. David Hutzel. Get a wrestler right. playing basketball. Yeah. That's good. That's exactly what I look for when I'm, when I'm doing this. But, you know, the only one that's ever beat me was Matt Sim. Oh, is that right? He came out and he was banking shots in left and right and... Uh, but uh, our rebounder today, come over here. We got our, our special rebounder, uh, Luca. We call him Big Lou Molly. He'll be getting rebounds for us, helping us out. So stay tuned. First of five. So you get to lead us off here. I always okay, have my great. guests go first. Hey, you I like her. That was very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Challenge. Thank you, Dr. Hutzel. Yeah, thank you. A special thank you to our, our rebounder, Luca Lumali. Give him a flex. Come on, flex for the camera. No, you're not going to do it? All right. Thanks again, guys. Stay tuned. See you All right, soon. so hey, everybody. Thank you for uh, tuning in again. I mean, we're here after the Sawbones Challenge. Um, you know, Dave, in closing, what we always like to do is, you know, just kind of talk about where we're going right? Like the future. And, um, I know it's hard. Um, I, I try to live my life in the moment. I try not to think too far ahead, whether it's a day or a week or a year or a month, wh whatever it may be. But like, where do you see yourself in five years, 10 years, 15 years from now? Yeah. So five years from now, um, I imagine one or more of my kids will be married. I hope we have grandchildren, but, uh, uh, I will always stay in Fairview. I think we'll have a second home somewhere. Uh, professionally, I'm hoping to move up in the leadership at UPMC Hammett. Uh, currently, um, the department head for uh, internal medicine. Um, you know, I'd be interested in becoming the chief medical officer for what's called regional health services. Um, moving into more of a, a little bit more of a leadership role, not necessarily administrative, but a little bit more of a leadership role. I think Greenfield Internal Medicine, that's the office I work in, is very successful. And, uh, you know, can I share that success with other offices? Can I expand that out? Um, I probably will be retired in about 10 years. I'm 53. I plan on being fully retired by the time I'm 63, six, no, much later than that. And I'll have a big party at my retirement, which you'll come to. Um, can I be one of the bands? You, you mentioned can be you one of the multiple bands. bands. Yeah. So Bill Spiros and I will be. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping to stay, you know, I want to stay in good health. I um, want to stay active in my church. I, I uh, really hope that my, you know, my wife and I continue to enjoy good health. And we've been married 29 years. That put us at 39 years. So, uh, you know, I think uh, I feel really hopeful. I feel really positive about, you know, my future, where I'm going. So. What about you? What are where you at five and ten years from now? 
still here, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Still here. Boys are still in school. Um, you know, Anthony's 12. So in five years, he'd be, you know, senior going in, or junior or senior going into high school. Yeah. Um, 10 years, you know, probably uh, Luca's eight. So he'd probably be a senior in, in high school. Um, loving, loving the area, loving Erie, loving my practice, still doing what I do. Because I love what I do. I absolutely love what I do. I, I, I don't think it'll be exactly the same as what I do now because I'm a firm believer in every day getting better, number one. Even it's just a little bit better, right? Just like 1% better every day. Um, but I, I, I see things evolving and changing because they always do. That's the one constant in life is that there are no constants. It's constantly changing. And for me, it's always trying to make it better and, and improve the experience for my patients. So trying to improve the experience for my hip and knee replacement patients, growing the practice, um, continuing to be what I consider the region's best orthopedic practice um, and, and really delivering upon that experience professionally. But then Karen and I, you know, we're, we're going to be getting ready to be empty nesters in 10 years. So um, what are we going to do? You and I have spoken about kind of like destinations where we would have like that second home, so to speak. I don't think I would ever move away from either Erie or Michigan because that's where family is. So we would always have a home in this area. Plus, I love the summers here. Sure. I love the falls here. Yeah. Right. I could not live in a Florida or even a Sedona or a Georgia in the middle of the summer. Yeah. Right. I want to be here. Yeah. And then in the in the the not so desirable months when there's that white stuff out there, uh, find a place. I, I love Europe. I love Italy. Um, you know, I've been to Italy probably seven or eight times. Uh, that's where my my family is from at least on my dad's side, I feel this strong, almost magnetic pull towards that area, especially Tuscany, because that's where my grandfather grew up. And I've been there several times and I just feel, I can't explain it. It's just like, it just pulls me. Yeah. The culture, the food, the 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 terrain. Uh, the, the, I love red wine, everything about it. It's a beautiful area. Um, and so I, I see us continuing to travel. Both Karen and I, um, I doubt we'll have any grandkids in 10 years, but hopefully not too long after that, yeah, right? Yeah, I, I would sure. love to, to be a grandfather. And um, it's taking good care of not only my patients, but like the community. It's such a huge thing to me. That's always been an influence that my parents had is giving back to the community, whether it's through our nonprofit, Do Good Incorporated. Um, we've got our golf outing coming up here next month. Um, I know you'll be away for that, but like I really look forward to that. When I even look more, because that's a fun event, but like we raise a lot of money for our Christmas event, which if if you ever if you and Carol want to come down, love it, um, and just volunteer, it, it is one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had. This will be our fourth annual, where we give away tons of food and gifts and stocking stuffers and 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 family gift baskets to to families. We've fed over three hundred families each year for three consecutive years. And and done all, we gave away bikes. We've given away over two dozen bicycles to families, and so it's just like that giving back because we are so fortunate. Yeah. So, um, but Dave, I, would, I just want to thank you. This has been You're a really really fun. You're welcome. Pleasurable. Thank you. For hour hour and a half. Yeah, thank you. And um, you know, stay tuned. Um, I just want to you know thank you guys for all of your comments, all of your suggestions. I ask you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, send us any questions you have, send us any requests that you have, uh, in terms of like things you'd like to see questions you may have. 
I know Ty Watoski had a question the other night. Uh, we've got another question coming up here, uh, probably next episode from uh, Sydney. So anyways, thank you again and stay tuned because we've got the next week's guest uh, kind of teaser trailer coming up. But thank you very much. Hey, Sawbones, Dr. Ryan Molly, Dr. David Hutzel. Have a great night. Take care. Without further ado, I'd like to uh, introduce and welcome Mr. Anthony Santoro. Thank you for What's having up, me. buddy? How I are appreciate you? appreciate it. Yeah. Um, I'm from the inner city of Syracuse, so, you know, baseball wasn't always the most popular sport. A lot of my buddies played, or a lot, not so much buddies, but a lot of the guys that I was around that were in the neighborhood played football and basketball and things of that nature, and baseball was introduced to me at a very early age uh, by my father, who never really played a ton of sports growing up. Um, he came from an immigrant family. Uh, they came over from Sicily. All roads lead back to Erie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I can say the same thing with myself because mm -hmm. uh, all roads do end up leading back to Erie. And it's kind of amazing that um, I was able to get my wife to come here from mm -hmm. Metro Detroit. So, well, I can yeah. tell you, I've already learned so much mm -hmm. just in this first little segment. So, yeah. You know, we always, at this point, we kind of do a beverage break. So mm -hmm. we, we did a little differently today because we, we kind of broke tradition. We, we actually came out of the gates with beverages. So for the <laughs> viewers out there, it's a little later than normal. So I'm off this week. I'm on vacation. <laughs> um, I'm normally in bed by like 8.30, 9 o'clock at the latest. Opposite schedules. A Anthony was at the bomb shelter training kids until 10 p.m. tonight. He didn't get here until probably 10.20-ish. Yeah. Ready, ready to turn the tables? Ready to roll. Let's go. Okay. Jay, edit this out. We're going to take a quick break because he's out of his drink, so we can't go the rest <laughs> of this without that. Honestly, I sit here. I still don't know how everything happened. That month, we had one month to build the facility out. We got mon one month. I believe it was one month free rent. Thanks, Drew. And... Um, <laughs> We, we had basically 30 days to, to build this place out, and um, we did it. Well, I have loved some fish around in the outdoors where I'm free. Where I spent my time before I hurt my hip and my knee. Tell me all about it, Doc.